Subscribe to Inclusion Revolution Radio wherever you can get podcasts. everyone and welcome into Stacking the Box. I'm your host Matt Verderam. We have a great show for you today. We'll talk about the juggernaut in New England and which teams could actually give the Patriots some trouble. We'll also speak with Russell Baxter, NFL researcher, worked on NFL primetime and is now a national writer and we'll get his take on a bevy of topics around the league. We also have Sarah Bedinger of Predominantly Orange, our Broncos blog here at Fansided to discuss what's going on in Denver. And then, of course, we'll have Josh Hill making his weekly Dying on this Hill prediction. And lastly, I'll go in-depth on the Jacksonville Jaguars and getting to the root of what their issues have been for the better part now of a decade. But let's start this week off with the prohibitive Super Bowl favorites, of course, that being the New England Patriots. Everybody listening to this podcast already knows their strengths. We know the Patriots have a terrific secondary. Devin McCourty, Butler and Gilmore on the outside – And offensively, there's no team in the league that has more talent. Tom Brady, Julian Edelman, Rob Gronkowski went healthy, Brandon Cooks. New England's going to score 30 points a game. Easily. You factor in on top of that that they have a weak division, fairly easy schedule because of that division. The Patriots have an inside track to the number one seed. Frankly, it would be shocking if they don't find their way to home field advantage throughout the playoffs in the AFC. With that being said, what are the weaknesses with New England? We saw Rob Ninkovich, he retired on Sunday, decided 11 years was enough, had a very good career. Now with him being gone off that edge, there's pressure on Coney Ealy, who was brought in from the Carolina Panthers via trade this offseason. Derek Rivers, he's a youngster out of Tennessee, rookie. A lot of people thought he was a late first, early second round talent, fell to the Pats in the third. And then there's Trey Flowers, who was the leading sacker last year for New England. Those three, Ely, Rivers, Flowers, they have to provide the pass rush. If they don't, there could be significant issues. Why? Well, last year, New England ranked 16th in the NFL, had 32 sacks. 13 of those sacks were from Jabal Sheard, Chris Long, and Ninkovich, all of whom are no longer on the team. 16th in the NFL is not bad. It's the definition of average. But when you're New England and you're playing with a lead almost every second of every game, you should be doing better than average. You should be toward the top half of the league. You should be in the top 10, top 8. Because when you think about it, if you're up by two scores, three scores in the second half of the game, you know the other team's going to be throwing the football. It should be very easy to generate pressure. Now, Logan Ryan was the second corner last year. He leaves. You bring in a replacement in Stephon Gilmore from Buffalo. Gilmore is a better player than Logan Ryan. I don't think he's a top-tier corner, but I think he's probably on that second tier. And with the combination of Butler and Gilmore, you don't have to worry so much about giving help on the back end. You could easily blitz more than you did last year, if you're in New England, if you want to, to get that pressure. So that does need to be mentioned. But the Patriots, if they don't get Flowers stepping up after he had seven sacks last year, 
they're going to be real problems up front because no other returning player had more than three sacks. And while Derek Rivers has a bevy of talent, he's a rookie. And most rookies don't come into the NFL and light it up, especially guys who are picked in the back half of the third round. It happens, but it doesn't happen often. It can't be something that's counted on. So, And if there's any Achilles heel with New England, and it's hard to find, that's probably it. The pass rush could be very weak, and it could cause that secondary to have to cover for long stretches of time. And while it's a very talented secondary, you are going to run into problems with that. At some point against good teams, guys are going to get open. If you're facing Pittsburgh, Antonio Brown, and if he gets reinstated, Martavis Bryant, they're going to get open. If you're facing Kansas City and it's Tyree Hill and it's Travis Kelsey, they're going to find a way to get open. If it's Oakland and it's Amari Cooper and Michael Crabtree, you guessed it, they're going to get open. So that's something to watch with New England. What are the sack numbers like early in the year? And what does Trey Flowers do? A lot of people expect him to be a star. Can he get the double-digit sacks this year? I think he can, but he's... How do you make a radio ad for an 8K TV that conveys the feeling of 33 million pixels with over a billion shades of color hitting your eyeballs? This is the best we can do. Samsung Neo QLED 8K. Unreasonably good. going to have to if New England wants to be able to generate consistent pressure. That all being said... Which teams could be a problem for what is, in my opinion, the greatest dynasty of all time? Well, during the Bill Belichick era, so figure 2000 on, technically really 2001 on, there have been ample teams that have tried to figure out a way to curtail New England, stop New England, beat New England, and with very little success. The one trait of all the teams that have given Tom Brady and Bill Belichick problems are teams that can get pressure on Brady without blitzing. The Giants won two Super Bowls against New England, and it was because they were able to get pressure and a pretty sweet helmet catch by David Tyree. But if you can't get pressure without blitzing, you have no chance. You are not going to beat New England in January. You need to be able to get home with your front four, drop the back seven, and hope that you can cover long enough and maybe give a couple different looks to make Brady hold on to that ball for a split second too long. And when you look at the league, which teams that are good teams have the type of roster that could create a problem for New England? Seattle, to me, one of those teams. Seattle could be a problem. Now, the offensive line in Seattle is a huge question mark, but Michael Bennett, he can play. Cliff Averill, he can play. Frank Clark, he can play. Kansas City, another team in terms of pass rush. They can get after you. Chris Jones, really good-looking rookie last year. He comes back second year. Justin Houston, he seems to be all the way back from that ACL injury a year ago. D. Ford last year, double-digit sacks. Tom Bali, still one of the best in the league at generating pressure, although certainly his sack numbers have dipped considerably. But those are all guys in Kansas City who can create pressure, who can be a problem one-on-one. Pittsburgh is another team. They don't do a great job of having guys who are 15 sacks in a year, but they do a great job in terms of getting pressure via design. The Steelers are excellent at forcing you into situations that are advantageous for them. James Harrison, he may be about 59 years old, but he can still play. Bud Dupree, he's a good-looking player off the edge. And now they bring in T.J. Watt, 
And he's somebody who I believe is going to be a factor even in his rookie season. So you have to think that Pittsburgh is going to be able to get some kind of pressure off the edge. And by the way, I think I said um, brother's name is escaping me at the moment. But Watts, first round pick for Pittsburgh, okay, he's somebody, and it is TJ, by the way, I was losing my mind for a minute. He's somebody who I think with Bud Dupree and James Harrison is going to be a problem for, for any offensive line, but you know, New England as well. And then the other two teams I would like to throw in are the Giants, again, and the Falcons. And the Falcons, if you watch the Super Bowl, got a ton of pressure on Brady early in the game. Problem was, they tired out. And when they tired out and they couldn't get pressure anymore, it was over. They got ransacked out of the building. Obviously, everybody knows, 25-point lead, gone in the blink of an eye. And that's what happens. The biggest difference in that game, people talk about Kyle Shanahan, and yes, his game plan wasn't great. They, they needed to run the ball much more. But the reason that game changed on a dime was because New England started to just dominate time of possession. Atlanta could not stay fresh, and it was over from there on out. So the next thing, you have to be a team that can cover because New England is going to throw a myriad of formations at you, and you need to be able to have a couple of really good corners, a linebacker who can cover. If you can't do those things – They will pick you apart with the short game, and your blitz won't matter. Your pressure won't matter. And that's my concern with Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, since Mike Tomlin has become the head coach there in in 2007, has played New England eight times. They are two and six in those games, and one of the wins came over Matt Castle. All the other teams I mentioned, Seattle, Kansas City, New York, Atlanta, they can all cover. Pittsburgh, there are huge question marks as to whether or not the Steelers can cover. Next thing, quarterbacks. This is where the Chiefs have a problem. It's very hard seeing Alex Smith beating New England in January. It's not impossible, but it's a very tall order. Alex Smith is not going to lose the game up there, but he's not going to win it for you, which means the surrounding supporting cast in Kansas City is going to have to find a way to get that done. Can that defense do it? Can the special teams do it? Kansas City's probably as equipped as anybody in those two areas, but Alex Smith can't go up there and throw for 180 yards. You have no chance. He's got to go up there and throw for 250, 275. Can he do it? Again, it's possible, but I wouldn't be betting on it. So that's where the Chiefs might fall short. But the biggest barrier for all these AFC teams, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, even if you want to throw Oakland or Tennessee in the mix, you're going to have to go into Foxborough. And the Patriots are going to roll the AFC East. Let's be honest. Buffalo and New York, no chance. Miami, maybe they get a split. Since 2001, the Patriots are 17-3 and at home in the playoffs. In fact, the Ravens were two of those three losses. The other one coming, shockingly, Mark Sanchez and the Jets, which proves miracles do happen, although the Jets that year were very good. And that's all why New England is, is an overwhelming favorite, and for good reason. The division is weak. The head coach-quarterback combo, you can argue, is the best we've ever seen in this league. And the rest of the roster is absolutely loaded. Yes, there are weak points. The pass rushes we talked about. The interior of the offensive line is some question marks. But boy, it's going to take a great game from one of the best in the NFL and a pretty average game by the Patriots to see an upset before the Super Bowl. And that's no slight on Pittsburgh or Kansas City or even some of these other upper echelon AFC teams. But New England, it's a different animal. And I think... 
the only real way the Steelers or the Chiefs could upset New England, or I, I should say upset the apple cart, really, is to somehow beat New England in the regular season. They all do play each other and get home field advantage. You know, see Pittsburgh or Kansas City beat New England, go 13-3. and three. Pittsburgh probably has a better shot to do that because their game against New England is at home. The Chiefs open up the regular season on that Thursday night in Foxborough. That's a tough spot. So those are a few things to consider. I do think that there are some teams out there who could beat the Patriots. I listed off five. I think those are the only five. And, of course, I will throw in one caveat. Green Bay would have a shot if for no other reason because Aaron Rodgers could throw for 400 yards and win the game by himself, even against a very good secondary. So that's where we stand going into August. Pats are the overwhelming favorite, but there are a handful of teams, maybe a half dozen or so, that would give the Pats a run for their money that at least could do so. So now we transition from the Patriots who, again, Got to think they are the best team in the league by a wide margin moving forward to the whole rest of the league. And for that, we welcome in Russell Baxter, covers the whole league, for fan-sided, and he was an NFL researcher on NFL primetime for how many years was it? Um, well, I did primetime for 17, but I was at ESPN for 22, and it was a lot of fun with uh, with Chris Berman and Tom Jackson. I, I can't tell you how thrilling it was to do that show live. I can only imagine. I remember watching it many, many years as a child. But we'll we'll move on. And I, I got you know right off the bat, I've got to ask you: of the thirty-two teams this year, which do you feel might be the most poised to regress from what they did last season? Well, I, I think I, I have one from each conference. Uh, the New York Giants concern me because uh, they're a playoff team last year, but they slumped down the stretch offensively. Defensively, they were sensational their secondary i think now rivals the seahawks as, as maybe the best in the league uh landon collins could have easily been defensive player of the year last year uh but people i don't know if people realize their last five regular season games and then the playoff game the giants failed to put at least 20 points on the board um they need to get more balance offensively they need that running game to reemerge, it hasn't been a factor for a couple of years now. I know they went out and got Brandon Marshall, and that's all well and good, and that gives them a dynamic trio with Odell Beckham Jr. and Sterling Shepard and Marshall. Um, but if you don't have that running game, no matter how good your defense is, eventually it will wilt. And over in the other conference, it's the Miami Dolphins. A little concerned about them because I don't know if they address their defense enough. Uh, in the offseason, they brought them, you know, brought in some linemen um, and their run defense last year was absolutely horrible. I know Vance Joseph isn't there anymore. Um, it, they really need some people to step up um, because even though they finished nine and two in the regular season, in their last 11 games uh, and made the playoffs for the first time since 2008, when they lost, it was ugly. A bad loss to Baltimore, um, horrible home loss to New England at the end of the year. And then before you could even get the star-spangled banner out of your mouth in the playoff game, Pittsburgh was way ahead of them in the first quarter. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was doing research for uh, Stacking the Box, the, the column, a few weeks ago, and I was looking up teams that went from missing the playoffs to making the playoffs and having a jump of at least four wins. And over the last 10 years, 33 teams have done so, including the Dolphins, Raiders, Cowboys, and Giants last year. Mm -hmm. And of the other of their 29, so the teams that we know what happened the following year, only 11 made the playoffs again. So, 
I, I don't disagree. I think the Dolphins, there are some real question marks there. The Giants, I may be like a little more than you just because I, I do love their defense, as you mentioned. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's really, really solid. But the offense, certainly major issues. On the other side of the coin, can you give me a few teams that you believe could make real strides in 2017? Maybe teams that missed the playoffs last year that you see playing into January this time around. Well, it's almost unfair. It's a pair of nine and seven teams that really surged last season. Uh, and again, one in the AFC, one in the NFC, Matt. Uh, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers um, beat Atlanta in Atlanta opening weekend uh, last year. Then they lost three in a row. Then they won eight of their last 12. Um, forced 27 turnovers in their last 12, uh, 12 games alone. I love the dynamic there. You have Jameis Winston, who, you know, still is making his share of mistakes. But as we saw in college and now we see in the pros, he'll make his mistakes, but they'll also turn around and make big plays. But I love the relationship not only between him and Dirk Cutter, the head coach slash offensive coordinator, but Dirk Cutter now employs Mike Smith as his defensive coordinator. Gee, does that sound familiar? Mike Smith was the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, and he employed Dirk Cutter as his offensive coordinator. I really like what they did in free agency. Not a lot of moves, three solid moves. Sean Jackson to pair with Mike Evans, Chris Baker to pair with Gerald uh, Gerald McCoy up the middle, and then J.J. Wilcox in the secondary. That's a team to keep an eye on. I think they could really push the Falcons. In the AFC, I guess I'm like everyone else, the Tennessee Titans. I like what they've done offensively, building that offensive line. Uh, John Robinson has come out, and, and even if a team is – uh, or a player's a former first-round draft choice. He's looking for players. He's looking for a physical mentality. DeMarco Murray was terrific last year. Marcus Mariota obviously coming back from the broken leg. He served uh, that he suffered late in the season. If they can get better cornerback play, and now they went out and, and got Logan Ryan from the New England Patriots, and they drafted a Dory Jackson at, at a USC. If that Dick LeBeau defense can look like a Dick LeBeau beef defense, they're going to give the Houston Texans in that division a real tussle. I agree on both counts. I love Tampa Bay. I think the Buccaneers are going to challenge Atlanta in that division, and that's no knock on Atlanta. But the Buccaneers, <clears> they're coming in. And in the AFC South, I think Tennessee's a team to beat, frankly. Uh, you know, I, I like Deshaun Watson and all that, but he's still a rookie quarterback. And Tennessee, they have a great offensive line. That offensive line can maul you up front. And that's something that really gets overlooked in today's game with the aerial assault that every team tries to put on. But, you know, I, I really I, – I'm with you 100%. And I'm curious, you know, coming out of the offseason, everybody always has a rookie or two that they really like, that they're looking at, that they believe is somebody to watch, you know, this year, maybe to be in that conversation for offensive or defensive rookie in the year. Is there a rookie that you're watching? And as a second question of that – is there? Do you believe there's a Dak Prescott situation in this quarterback class? Well, I'll take the second part first. I don't know if there necessarily is. Um, you know, we saw a bunch of quarterbacks get drafted in the um, first round, and you know, Deshaun Watson is obviously going to vie for the starting job, but I don't know if he'll get it. But you know, Pat Mahomes and Mitch Trubisky were more futuristic picks. Now when that future pops up who knows um as far as the rookies i love leonard fournette with the jacksonville jaguars uh it's only the third time in their brief history now i've only been around since 1995 um james stewart in 95 fred taylor in 98 and now leonard fournette a first round running back for people maurice jones drew was a second round running back now 
we just saw some news, obviously, with Brandon Albert retiring, um, but they have Cam Robinson from University of Alabama. He might wind up having to step right in um, and start at left tackle. But Leonard Fournette really intrigues me. On the defensive side, Matt, I, I, I still find it hard to believe that Jonathan Allen slipped to number 17. And there's talk about a team that really needs help on the defensive line. Um, every football team is looking for consistency. But you don't want to be 28th in total defense two years in a row. And that's what we've seen with the Washington Redskins, um, who haven't really helped out Kirk Cousins all that much. But in free agency, they signed Terrell McClain and Stacey McGee. They pair them now with Jonathan Allen. They brought in Zach Brown, an inside linebacker. They brought in DJ Swearinger, um, who is a missile at the safety spot. But a lot of it depends on stopping the run. They've been poor run defense the last couple of years. I like what Jonathan Allen brings to the Washington Redskins. Yeah, Allen, you know, he was a top three pick in a lot of people's mocks yeah. going out of the season. Then he had that shoulder situation. But if that shoulder can can hold up, uh, I'm, he was, to me, the most dominant player in college last mm-hmm. year. Uh, week in and week out, he destroyed Washington in that semifinal game, basically by himself. So, uh, Russell, appreciate the time. Uh, we'll do it again for sure. And everybody, by all means, go on Twitter, check him out, at Backs football guru it's it's, can't miss stuff and i really appreciate you coming on and giving a few minutes my pleasure matt have a great day so that was russell baxter and he believes the buccaneers and the titans are going to be two teams that can make that jump from missing the playoffs to getting back in the playoffs i tend to agree with him i think both teams are poised for double digit win seasons and another team that might be poised to do that is the denver broncos of course going nine and seven last year missing the postseason though so much success prior to that year, having made the playoffs every year since 2011. Of course, two Super Bowl appearances, one win. And on that note, we bring in Sayer Bedinger of Predominantly Orange, the Broncos fan side of blog. And Sayer, how are you? Doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you. Now, first things first, of course, when you talk about the Broncos this year, everybody wants to know what's going on at quarterback. So far, it seems that the battle's been fairly even between Trevor Simeon and Paxton Lynch. What do you see out of the quarterback battle, and who do you think ultimately wins out? You know, I think uh, from from what I've been hearing, uh, I'll get to see it in person here in a couple of days. I'm actually out in Colorado right now about to head out to training camp um, for a couple of days here to see these guys in person. But everything that we're hearing right now, it sounds like Paxton Lynch has made some pretty big strides from where he was last season uh, didn't seem like the fit in Gary Kubiak's offense was really there for him as far as playing under center um, and kind of just absorbing everything that that type of offense um, required him to do right away as a rookie. And so where Trevor Simeon had a year's edge on him in that regard last year, they're kind of both on an even playing field as far as learning Mike McCoy's playbook this offseason. And I think Lynch has really responded to that. There's a lot more uh, stuff in the shotgun for him to work with and a lot of quicker decisions quicker reads and I think Lynch has really closed the gap if not really overtaken Simeon in that regard um, he's definitely got the bigger arm to throw the ball downfield and so I think that in an offense that's going to be kind of a fast paced um, using almost a short passing game as an extension of the running game I think Paxton Lynch will excel as that type of guy who can get the ball out there quickly, and then stretch a defense vertically a little bit better than Simeon. So ultimately, I see Lynch winning the battle. Whether you know that has to do fully with on-field merit 
not 100% positive because obviously, you know, Lynch was a former first round pick. Uh, and so you want to see what you have with that type of investment before you go ahead and make any decisions for the future. Sure. And I, I would agree. I think ultimately, you know, just judging from a little bit of far, uh, Lynch does seem to have somewhat the advantage. And, and part of that reason, I think, is because you have a new coaching staff. Vance Joseph comes in, clean slate for both guys. He takes over for Gary Kubiak, who, of course, retired last year for some health reasons. And Joseph has been pretty vocal about what he wants to see. Came in, kind of called out the Marius Thomas a little bit, saying he wants to see more out of him. And he's not been shy of saying, hey, we need to be better offensively. We need more explosive plays. What are your first impressions of Joseph? Oh, I, I love how, exactly what you just said, his – his being so forthcoming is is refreshing. Um, yesterday, even after practice, the the some reporter asked him, "What do you think of the quarterbacks today?" And he just flat out said, "I didn't like what I saw at all." And uh, I think that type of challenge to the media, um, I can't imagine how how much that extends into uh, those meeting rooms. You know what he says to the media if he's that candid to them. I can't imagine what he's saying to the quarterbacks themselves or to the coaches themselves saying, Hey, this is what we got to have. And uh, He's a guy who seems like he's going to demand results. Um, he, he was a player, you know, so he obviously knows what works and what doesn't. And he's seen everything from the offensive and defensive side as a former quarterback and defensive back in college. And so I, I love what he brings to the table as a former player and knowing exactly what it takes to extract the best out of players. He understands what motivates certain guys, what doesn't motivate other guys. And I, I love that he's so forthcoming uh, in the way that he kind of presents his opinions to the media. And I, I think that's refreshing. You know, I'm curious to see with the Broncos this year, the offensive line last year, I think everybody would agree it was one of the weak spots on the team. And it seems like John Elway mm -hmm. felt that way. He addressed things, added Ronald Leary and Garrett Bowles. Leary, of course, being a free agent from Dallas. Bowles being the first-round pick to tackle out of Utah. The only spot that I see really on the offensive line right now that I would say is still a large question mark is the right tackle spot. Mm -hmm. do, do you expect the line to be fixed, or does it still alarm you looking at the way it is? I think that it'll be uh, vastly improved. Uh, they signed Benelik Watson from the Oakland Raiders. And, of course, you know, having scarcely seen him actually on the field the past four or five years with the Raiders, that gives you a little bit of reason to pause when you're getting just a little too excited about what he brings to the table. But I think that definitely you mentioned guys like Garrett Bowles. Those guys are having – uh, a, a pretty significant impact already this offseason, specifically Bowles, who has been really good through the first couple days of camp, pretty much has solidified already that starting left tackle spot as, as if there were any question about it in the first place. But I think you're right. The right tackle spot, I mean, every team in the AFC West seems to have two really good rushers. And so you have to have a solidified right tackle spot. And we just we don't know exactly what that's going to be from Watson. Um but we definitely know that Donald Stevenson and Tyson Brylo are, are not going to be over there, which is a good thing uh, unless there's an injury to Watson. So I guess more more so right now it's kind of the devil you know versus the devil you don't type of mentality that Broncos fans are taking until we see Watson kind of prove himself out there on the field. But there's definitely optimism. Um, he's, a, he's obviously a big guy with a lot of athletic ability for his size and great uh, functional strength and good feet. So it'll be uh, 
it'll be something that uh, that we'll have to see develop on the field in games. But as of right now, I would say Broncos fans are, for the most part, pretty optimistic that the offensive line is is in pretty good shape. Now, the AFC West, you could make an argument, and I would make the argument, it's a tough division of football. You know, last year, mm-hmm. three teams with winning records, Kansas City and Oakland, each won 12 games last year. The Chargers were the weak sister last year, but if they're healthy, and with the Chargers, that is a huge if. They're mm-hmm. very, very talented, on really on both sides of the ball. How do you see Denver fitting into the AFC West puzzle? That's a great question. It's a it's a pretty balanced division in terms of every team seems to have a great strength and every team seems to have a fatal flaw. Um, with with Denver, that fatal flaw is going to be whether or not the offense can can do anything this year, and um, that's you know in a division where you play with San Diego and Kansas City specifically. I don't see Oakland's defense as uh, quite on the level of those two, uh, at least you know, until we see them proven on the field. But the Broncos were one of the worst teams in the NFL offensively last year, um, especially converting third downs and converting in the red zone. So they have to show that they can improve in those areas, and they're they're going up against some really tough competition. So I think think as long as the Broncos show signs of improvement offensively, I think they'll be right in the thick of things. You know, my initial thought was that they would be still maybe a step behind Kansas City this year, but I think Oakland, you know, and Denver are kind of on that same, uh, kind of on that same playing field. Whereas Oakland has the great offense and the kind of the suspect defense. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in Kansas City as well with Patrick Mahomes looking like he's doing pretty well the first, uh, you know, few days of practice out here and how that affects Alex Smith and everything. It kind of reminds me of the 2006 Broncos with Jake Plummer and Jay Cutler. Um, kind of maybe a little pressure on him there, but. Uh, you know, it'll it'll be it'll be something where I think the Broncos, if they if they improve at all offensively, you know, that's a team that won nine games last year uh, with that defense, and the defense didn't get any worse this offseason. So they can win nine games with as bad as they were offensively last year. I think if there's improvement, you're looking at a at least a nine ten win team again. You know, I find Denver to be one of the most... Something you probably do know. Progressive can not only offer you a great price when you bundle home and auto, they offer you round-the-clock protection. Something you probably don't know? The average garage door is made up of 1.3-millimeter aluminum panels. Something you probably do know? Your neighbor likes to tinker with his dirt bike. Something you probably don't know? A runaway dirt bike can take out your garage door and a good portion of your car bumper. Bundle your home and auto with Progressive and get more than a great price. Get round-the-clock protection. Something you know for the things you don't know. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and third-party insurers and subject to policy terms. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Interesting teams in the league, and, and I'll get you out of here on this. The, the defense, to me, still is a championship-caliber defense. Mm-hmm. You know, between Tlaib and Harris, Harris being one of the most underrated players in the league, and then Miller, you can argue at the, at the worst he's probably a top three defensive player in the league so you know mm-hmm. yeah and there are other pieces as well Brandon Marshall Derek Wolf but the offenses we've talked about here at nauseam it, it is a work in progress and we're not sure whether it's Simeon or Lynch and and regardless of who it is how well they play what are your overall expectations of this group in terms of if you had to pick do you think this is a playoff team right now or do you think this is a team that may need one more year to get back into the postseason I think that's it's definitely a team that can make the playoffs. Um, you know, nine nine wins like they had a year ago would have been good enough to win the AFC South. Uh, but I think that they obviously in the division that they play in, it gets a little tougher. Um, 
So you're really asking the question of whether or not they're good enough to best one of the Raiders or the Chiefs this year. And I think that the answer to that would be yes. I think the Broncos' defense, like you said, is is still a championship-caliber defense. And in today's NFL, I mean, they can shut down the passing game. I mean, and that's a huge asset in their favor. The Broncos can rush the passer, which, you know, has taken a little bit of a hit over the last couple of days with Shane Ray and Shaquille Barrett being on the uh, the PUP or the injury list for a couple of weeks here. And um, Von Miller is going to kind of have to hold down the four, but I think that those guys are still good enough to, to make the playoffs. And like I've said over the, over the past, you know, however many months now with this Broncos team is to say, if you can just get into the playoffs, you never know what's going to happen. And so I think that, I think they're still even a championship caliber team as a whole. They just have to find a way to get into the playoffs. And with that type of defense holding things down and an offense, like I said, if they can improve whatsoever, that's a team that I think could definitely um, be a playoff contender. And, you know, everyone thinks right now it's New England and then everybody else in the AFC. But we've seen the Broncos absolutely shut down that New England offense the past couple of seasons, including uh, last year when they allowed only 16 points in in that loss i mean the offense just couldn't do anything and so i think that the broncos and the chiefs and and the raiders are all going to be right there in the playoff race again this year but it just comes down to ken paxson trevor simeon elevate that offense to even just a slightly higher level and i think that they will and and they're definitely capable of that with some of the guys they brought in this offseason at the skill positions and along the offensive line and um, with the coaching uh, changes they made offensively, I think that that's going to really help a lot. Um, so I do think the Broncos are playoff caliber. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of can they improve offensively, but that defense is going to be ready once again to to shut some people down and um, kind of lead the way. Well, Sayer, I uh, I appreciate your time. I I agree with you. I think if if Denver can get even to around average offensively. I think they, they could certainly be a playoff team. And uh, we'll definitely be catching up with you down the road to uh, see exactly how it all unfolds. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. Yep. Well, again, thanks to Sayer and a great job by him. And it'll be interesting to see how Denver plays out the season. I, I could see a 7-9 team. I could see an 11-5 team if things go well offensively. I tend to Go toward that middle, maybe another 8-8, eight and 9-7 eight, and seven year. But we'll see. Denver certainly has the talent to surprise. And one team that has talent that really at this point, if they play well, wouldn't surprise anybody, are the Buccaneers. They happen to be the favorite team of one Josh Hill, fan-sided editor, editor, and the main man in dying on that hill, which we do here weekly. And this week, Josh is sticking close to home, and I'll let you take it away. Oh, yeah, sticking close to home with the Buccaneers. Getting you ready for uh, hard knocks, I guess. You could watch some of these storylines play out. But uh, this week, you know, we talked about a tight end last week up in Green Bay and Martellus Bennett, who I don't think is going to do well. Uh, Down in Tampa, you've got Cameron Brait, who is actually underrated, I think, as far as everybody's paying attention to. O.J. Howard comes in in the draft. He's going to be the guy of the future for sure. But Cameron Brait, everybody seems to be sleeping on him as a viable target in this new revamped offense. And you got to keep an eye on him this year because right now in camp so far, Brait has been the guy that Jameis Winston likes to throw to. He was catching everything in minicamp and early on, and now that they're getting into training camp, O.J. Howard's getting more reps. But if you look at the bond between Jameis Winston and Cameron Brait, 
that's going to translate on the field in the regular season. That's just not an off-season thing. So don't be surprised this year if Brait has as good, if not better, a year than O.J. Howard does, who, let's not forget, is a rookie. You know, Brait finished third on the league, third on the team, I should say, in targets last year, only one target behind slot receiver Adam Humphreys. Mike Evans actually had the most targets of any player in the NFL at 175. I don't expect that to happen again. But when you look at Brait, he had 81 targets, caught 57 passes for 660 yards and eight touchdowns. And if you look at the game logs from last year, he saw significant upticks in targets in the second half of the year. He went from 23 in the first eight games to 34 in the final eight. Mm-hmm. And if you break that down, he was 17th in targets for tight ends, so average. But he ranked 12th in yardage, and he tied for first with eight touchdowns alongside Hunter Henry, the rookie out in, well, now Los Angeles, then San Diego. So I do look for the Bucks to spread the ball around more this year. I don't think Mike Evans is getting 175 targets with Deshaun Jackson now in the fold. But I'm very interested to see if Brait can continue to get that wealth of targets with O.J. Howard, who's not only a high-profile pick, but a first-round pick coming in. Yeah, and, and to go to the point, too, what you said about Bray coming on in the second half of the year, that goes back to the bond that he has with Winston. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't really always base this in numbers. Some things you got to go off on with a gut instinct. And if you look at Winston's first half of the season last year, he was getting killed because every single option that he had was Mike Evans. It was Mike Evans. Check down, look for Mike Evans. Mike Evans on the sideline. Mike Evans up the seam. And then you throw out of bounds. Those were his options. And then in the latter half of the year, you saw that he started to spread the ball out more. He started to get more comfortable with other targets, specifically Cameron Brait. Now, I'm not saying that Brait's going to you know, unseat O.J. Howard as you know, this tight end of the future. I think that Brait has a shelf life in Tampa. He's not going to be there forever, and he's definitely not going to be the number one guy. But that relationship that he has with Jameis Winston, and you, it can get boiled down to this. If you look at the red zone targets, you know, he had 81 targets all over last year. Uh, Cameron Brait was targeted 16 times in the red zone. That is one less than Mike Evans and second best on the team. If you look at red zone efficiency, Mike Evans caught eight of those 17 passes in the red zone. Cameron Brait went 10 for 16. So he's a reliable target for Jameis Winston in the red zone. And that then backs up the idea that Winston trusts him. He can throw to him. He looks for him. And the more targets that you had, like you said, You've got Jackson. You've got Chris Godwin, who don't forget about him, big guy, 6'1", 205, I think. So he's going to be taking targets away from Adam Humphreys more. But you've got more options to throw. But if you have that trust with a receiver, don't discount that. And, you know, it may take away from O.J. Howard, but look at the bright side. That's something that O.J. Howard can then learn from Cameron Bray. He can learn that and kind of pass on that torch of that relationship with Jameis Winston, which is only going to help, especially when you have a smart guy like Cameron Bright, who's intelligent in real life, not just on the field, and then helping a rookie. Well, you mentioned his intelligence, and I'll take it a step further. He went to Harvard. <laughs> Your backup quarterback, Ryan Fitzpatrick, also went to Harvard. Yeah. So if, if Fitzy gets in there, and I know you don't want to <laughs> see that, but if he gets in there and they, and they connect, it might be the smartest connection in NFL history. You'd have to go back and look. I know Sid Lockman was an Ivy Leaguer, too, but – that would be Harvard to Harvard. That might be the first time that's ever happened in the NFL. But getting back to the to the big point, I feel like if you're the Buccaneers, you're not drafting O.J. Howard in the first round if you think that Brait is your long-term answer. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering 
is it that Brait last year really came on and was this real integral piece, or was he more of a circumstantial situation where, other than Mike Evans, the Buccaneers really didn't have anybody else to throw to if this slot receiver, Adam Humphreys, was taken away? I tend to believe that Braid obviously has talent, but that they think he's more of a second tight end because, look, you're taking Howard, what, 19th overall? You're not doing that if you don't if, if, if you feel that Brait is going to be the answer going forward. The only other option you could have is the Bucks just want to go with that two tight end set, that 12 personnel, and they want to play in the way that New England has played for so many years, that Kansas City plays under Andy Reid. Now, maybe that's an option, but I tend to believe that they're looking as Braid as a guy who's going to be taking a little bit of a backseat to Howard, although you'd think not right away. No, I definitely don't think it's going to be right away. There's going to be, you know, a transitional period. And I think really that's what Brait is going to benefit from this year is that transitional period where O.J. Howard is going to be settling into this role that he's going to have, hopefully, for the foreseeable future and doing it well. Uh, but having Brait out there, they've been doing a lot of two tight end sets in training camp. And you don't, don't, everybody wants to throw in Luke Stocker, too, but Luke Stocker is going to be your blocking tight end. And both of these guys are going to have to block, too. But they create mismatches. Cameron Brake created mismatches last year, and O.J. Howard is definitely going to create mismatches. So having two guys like that on the field at the same time, you know, like you said, it's kind of like the New England model, and that's not a bad model to follow. And historically, the Buccaneers have followed a lot of New England models uh, as far as, like, trying to build their team, the way that the personnel that they bring in or they interview – Certainly getting fleeced in trades, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but so having O.J. Howard out there with Cameron Brait, it's not going to mean that Brait is all of a sudden, you know, Rob Gronkowski or even the Kyle Rudolph, but he's going to be productive and he's going to be more productive. And, you know, I tied the Martellus Bennett conversation last week back into fantasy football, and I think that there's a fantasy football play here to be had. Everybody's going to be buying high on O.J. Howard. Don't sleep on Cameron Brait. Maybe not getting all the targets that he got last year, but he's going to be effective. And that relationship with Jameis Winston in the red zone is not going to go anywhere. Just because there's more targets doesn't mean that Jameis Winston's all of a sudden going to forget that Cameron Braid exists. Well, you know, a couple of points. You bring up the, the red zone and, you know, great numbers on that. Yeah, if for that alone, he's a good fantasy mm. option, maybe even as a second tight end, what have you. But, you know, last year, he really got better as the year went on. He's a young guy. He's only 26 years old. So the Buccaneers certainly have something going there. As far as Luke Stocker goes, that man is a road cop. There is, there is no – look, this show, we try to be intelligent and honest. Luke Stocker is atrocious. He's bad. Um, and that's good. fine because he's a third tight end and most third tight ends are atrocious. So uh, there's, there's, no, there's no fear there. I actually think, though, the tight ends are going to do very well in Tampa for one reason – and one reason, well, I shouldn't say for one reason alone, but for one reason predominantly, and that is when you have Deshaun Jackson and Mike Evans, you're going to stretch the field. You're going to go, especially with Jameis Winston, you're going to go down the field. And when you're doing that and you're pulling those safeties and those corners deep down the field, you're stretching that level out between the defensive backs and the linebackers, and that's a really nice spot for Brait or for Howard to find some room in the seam, work that second level, it's going to be very interesting to see. You know, everybody thinks of Tampa as this great offensive team that doesn't have a defense. In reality, I think Tampa Bay already has a really good defense. Mm-hmm. If you look at the offseason moves, it was all about getting better offensively, and I think that's what the Buccaneers did. I'm really looking forward to seeing how Brayt and Howard work off each other. I do too, and, and you know, looking at uh, Deshaun Jackson's role in this offense, basically, 
a lot of the stuff that he's been doing in training camp, they've been giving him end arounds. They've been working these trick plays. Uh, so I would look for that to, like you said, open up the field and maybe confuse defenses a little bit to get Brait and O.J. Howard some more looks. You know, uh, not to get off topic, but Deshaun Jackson hasn't recorded uh, rushing statistics since 2014. So maybe we'll look for that streak to be broken. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Just a fun thing that I found looking at some of these numbers. But, you know, the targets, Russell Shepard's not there. you got Vincent Jackson's not there. I think there's 72 targets between those two that can get spread out into this offense. And then let's not discount the fact that Jameis Winston can just throw more. He threw it 567 times last year. He's going to throw it way more this year. So, you know, like I like I said, O.J. Howard, he's the guy of the future. He's not going to be unseated by Cameron Brait. But the hill that I'll die on is that people sleeping on Brait or thinking that this is just going to be O.J. Howard and two receivers, you're very wrong, and you're going to be sorely mistaken if you, you know, put all your eggs into one basket, especially if you're considering fantasy. Well, that is Josh Hill's dying on this hill this week, and he basically just came after every listener by like, <laughs> threatening them about uh, sleeping on O.J. Howard and, or excuse me, sleeping on Cameron Brait because of O.J. Howard. I think it's going to be really interesting. I really do. I, I think the Buccaneers are one of these teams that really you know, everybody's kind of expecting that next jump. The Bucs went 9-7 and seven last year. I think the Buccaneers are going to compete in the NFC South for the division. And that is no slight on Atlanta, who I think has one of the best three or four rosters in the NFL. Uh, obviously went to the Super Bowl last year. But the Buccaneers, they can play. They can play. And I think a lot of us expected Dirk Cutter. Ah, what do you know about Dirk Cutter? Good offensive coordinator, but what can he really do as a head coach? Well, he did a pretty damn good job last year, and Mike Smith is that defensive coordinator. He's going to get another head coaching job sooner rather than later, but while he's in Tampa Bay, he's going to do a heck of a job. Did a great job last year, and that defense on all three levels, whether you want to talk about Brent Grimes and Vernon Hargraves, you want to t- in the secondary, you want to talk about guys like Quan Alexander and the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Monte David and Gerald McCoy in the front seven. It's a good team. Noah Spence as well. That's a good team. They're going to be a problem for a lot of people in the NFC South. And when you look at New England's schedule, I'll tie this into what we talked about at the beginning of the show. That's one of the harder games New England's going to play all year. It's a, a Thursday night at Tampa. I believe it's week five. That's a tough spot. It's a tough spot. So let's get into our closing thought of the week, and we're going to talk about another team down in Florida, the Jacksonville Jaguars. And the Jaguars have been in the news uh, the past week, and it's not been for great reasons. Uh, actually, right before we went on the air, uh, Brandon Albert decided to retire. He wanted a raise. He didn't get one following his trade from Miami to Jacksonville. So he said, you know what? Nine years, enough is enough. I'm going to walk away. Albert ends up having a pretty good career for first-round pick. Not great, but good. And uh, Jacksonville was really hoping that he would solidify that left tackle position, which has been nothing more than a turnstile really since Eugene Monroe is in his prime. It's not going to be the case. So Cam Robinson now, second-round pick out of Alabama, he's going to be getting the looks there. Uh, we'll see how he does. Early returns, are, he's looked pretty good in camp. Now, it's camp, but he's looked good, so you've got to be happy about that if you're a Jaguars fan. Now, what you're not happy about if you're a Jaguars fan is on Saturday night, Blake Bortles in their first padded practice through five interceptions. I don't care. Padded practice, no pads. He's thrown against a bunch of – College kids are thrown against the modern-day steel curtain. Five interceptions is not good. 
And this is a guy going into his fourth year. Should know this offense. Should know the receivers he's throwing to. That's atrocious. And it's even more atrocious when you realize that Bortles has been an interception factory throughout his career. First three years in the league, he's been in the top five, or if you want to look at it the other way, the bottom five in picks every single year of his career. Remember a couple of years ago when Peyton Manning was basically a geriatric out there trying to throw the football with his elbow? Bortles had more picks that year than Peyton Manning. So factor all that in. He led the league that year back in 2015. Now, moving away from Bortles and just looking at the overall scope of the Jaguars, that roster, when you look at it, has talent. Problem is you've been able to say that for years about Jacksonville and it hasn't materialized into anything decent. The Jaguars have not reached the playoffs since 2007. Biggest reason for that is because they have been atrocious in the draft since the beginning of 2008. When you really get down and look at the nitty-gritty of Jacksonville from 2008 through last year's draft, so not including this current class, Jacksonville drafted 63 players. Of those 63, Allen Robinson is the only one to reach the Pro Bowl. Did it once. There has not been one player that they have drafted in almost a decade now, in nine classes, that has been a first-team All-Pro. Which is stunning no matter what way you slice it, but it's incredibly stunning when you think about how high these draft picks have been over those 10 years, over those nine years, rather. Jacksonville, since 2008, here are the first-round picks in order. Derek Harvey, Eugene Monroe, Tyson Alu-Alu, Blaine Gabbert, Justin Blackman, Luke Jokel, Blake Bortles, Dante Flower, excuse me, Dante Fowler, Jalen Ramsey, and Leonard Fournette. Now, of course, Fournette's a complete unknown, comes into the league with a lot of hype. Ramsey is an excellent corner, so they hit there. Everybody else ranges from massive all-time bust to average, and in the case of Mr. Fowler, what seems to be a little bit of a head case, a lot of issues off the field. All of those picks were in the top 10. That's a problem. There's a reason, by the way, if you think about it, that they have drafted in the top 10 for the last 10 years running. That is unbelievable. That is 1990s Cincinnati Bengals-esque when Chris Berman famously coined them the Bungles. If you're drafting top 10 every year, you stink. Jacksonville has stunk because of the failures in the draft. Look, when you draft well in the NFL, even if you're bad in free agency, you're going to have a lot of good young players on cheap contracts. And that opens up the avenues of free agency because you're going to have cap space. The Jaguars have had to spend wildly on free agents over the last couple of years because their young talents aren't there. They're bereft of anybody who's 26, 27 and younger and who can play. Now, Dave Caldwell has been the general manager since 2013. And when you look at his his track record in the draft, it's uneven at best. His first draft 2013 was a total disaster. 2014, much better. Got Allen Robinson, brought in Marquise Lee, Brandon Linder, who's become one of the better centers in the league, just got a $50 million deal. Telvin Smith, very good player. And you go to 2015, again, really underwhelming. Not a good class. 
last year, hits on Ramsey. Miles Jackson, buddy, that we got to see how it plays out, but he's got potential. Okay, that was a better class. That was a class that, again, there's, there's some there's some hope there, some promise. The problem has been they haven't drafted quite well enough. They haven't hit on those superstar players. They haven't found those guys in the sixth round who have really contributed outside of it, Helton Smith. And because of that, they've gone out and spent lavishly in free agency. And you think about all the deals that Jacksonville has put together over the last handful of years during the Caldwell era. Names come to mind like Malik Jackson, Calais Campbell, A.J. Boye, Chris Ivory. On a lesser deal, Calvin Beecham didn't work out. You think about guys like Dan Scuda and Devon House, who were wildly overpaid. Deshaun Gibson, Prince of Mucamara. Julius Thomas. These are all big names. These are all guys who, most of which were brought in on huge deals. Well, obviously we're waiting on Boye, and and we're going to see what happens with Campbell, who's 30 years old. I don't see how you think he's part of the championship core, unless he plays at least 35, 36, and you get good in that time. I love the signing of Boye. I'll go on record with that. I thought he was the best corner available by a mile last year. In fact, I thought he was the best free agent available. And they stole him away from a division rival. And he's young. I believe he's 25 years old. So that I can get behind. Everybody else on that list, Malik Jackson for $90 million. Listen, Malik Jackson's a nice player. Malik Jackson's not going to be the reason you're winning the Super Bowl. Okay? And yes, he won one in Denver. But let's be real. What was he, the sixth best player on that defense? Miller, Ware, Tlaib, Ward, Harris. He may be sixth, and you can make a real strong argument that Derek Wolf was as good, and Brandon Marshall certainly is good. They, and by the way, speaking of Brandon Marshall, this exposes another problem with Jacksonville. Even when the Jaguars find a solid player, they often don't know how to evaluate that talent from within. They drafted Brandon Marshall in the fifth round back in 2012. They cut him the following year. He's gone on now to get a nice lucrative second year from the second contract from the Broncos, won a Super Bowl with them. He's been part of two Super Bowl appearances. He's a a good player, and they let him walk. Terrence Knighton, Zach Miller, and Rashad Jennings were all picks by Jacksonville in in 2009. Knighton was really the only one who did much of anything in Jacksonville, but all of them probably made their names elsewhere. Zach Miller in Chicago, Rashad Jennings going to Oakland and to New York. Not saying any of those guys are Hall of Famers, but those are good players. Jacksonville picked them. Jacksonville let them walk. If you want to change the fortune of that franchise, it starts with drafting better because you can talk about all the free agent acquisitions you want. Dave Caldwell has gone out and signed as many as anybody in the last handful of off seasons. And since he's been there, since 2013, Jacksonville's 15 and 49. 15 and 49 in the worst division in the league. They have been housed year after year after year. They're waiting for a six-win season under Dave Caldwell. And by the way, everybody forgets last year, there were people picking them to win the division. They went 3-13. and 13. And you could talk about, well, Gus Bradley was a bad coach. And look, Gus Bradley, you know, great thief coordinator, was a bad coach. Doug Marone comes in. Doug Marone's been a head coach one year of his, of his NFL career. He was in Buffalo. Went 9-7, and seven, didn't make the playoffs. But 9-7 and seven in Buffalo is basically 14-2 and two anywhere else. And so I think Marone, listen, he's not a sexy pick, so to speak, but he gives you something. 
I could see Marone going in there and doing a nice job. And he's going to have to because the coaching has been an issue in Jacksonville as well. Look, what the team came to be in 1995. And between then and 2011, Jack Del Rio and Tom Coughlin were the only coaches they had. Okay, And Del Rio got fired midway through 2011. And, and I believe it was Mel Tucker who was the interim there. But as far as just actual head coaches who had a future there, it was two guys for 17 seasons. They have now had three since. Mike Malarkey had one year, 2-14 and 14 out. And by the way, he's doing pretty well in Tennessee. Gus Bradley is given three and a half years out. Now it's Doug Marone's turn. Jacksonville has talent on that roster, but the quarterback situation's a mess, the offensive line is a mess, and the drafting has been a mess. And when your drafts are no good, you have to constantly spend money in free agency, and it brings down the depth of your team, it brings down the quality, and it brings down the shelf life. We talked to Sarah Bedinger earlier, covers the Broncos for us, does a hell of a job. One of the problems that Broncos have had is John Elway the last handful of years has not drafted well. That's why you see special teams suffer in Denver. That's why when guys get hurt now in Denver, got problems. They don't have the depth they used to have. Early on in the, in the decade, Denver drafted as well as anybody in the league. That matters big time, and it gets overlooked because free agency is so much more attractive to the casual fan because it's just these big dollar amounts, and most casual fans, they don't know who these guys are in the third round getting picked. But in the NFL, you want to get good, you better draft good. Jacksonville needs to change that around, and until they do, you're looking at a team that's going to struggle year in and year out. I like Jacksonville's defense this year. A couple episodes ago, Josh Hill came on, so he thought they might be a top-five unit. But that offense, with that quarterback and that line, no chance. No chance. So that's our show for this week. I appreciate everybody listening. Uh, We are going to be back next week, as we are every week here at Stacking the Box. The season is finally upon us. First game, Hall of Fame game, Thursday night, Cowboys and Cardinals. Yeah, we're going to see the starters for about 90 seconds. But it's football, and it's back, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. So we at least have real things to talk about. Hopefully all these teams can stay healthy out there. Chargers already losing Mike Williams for what could be the season with a back issue. It's a tough blow. Hopefully hopefully he can recover. Maybe, uh, maybe get lucky and not be out for the whole year. But in any event, we will be back next week. We thank you for listening. Please go on to iTunes, subscribe, rate us. Of course, only if you like it. If you don't like it, then don't rate it because nobody needs that in their life. So. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next week. Underdog Fantasy is the fastest-growing fantasy app and easiest place to play fantasy sports. Just jump on underdogfantasy.com or download the app, draft your team, and that's it. And if drafts aren't your thing, they also have a pick'em game where you can win 20 times your money in a single night. Use promo code RADIO, and Underdog will double your first deposit when you sign up with up to $100 in bonus cash. Deposit $100? Get $100 free. That's promo code RADIO. Terms and conditions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.